episode 21 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the OSHA topic of excavation and trenching. Our guest today is Joseph Lanute, who is the president of Universal Safety Compliance, LLC, and is a lead instructor at the OSHA Training Institute Education Center at Arizona State University. University Safety Compliance, LLC is a full-service safety consulting, training, and risk management company providing all aspects of safety and loss control services to companies throughout Arizona and the Southwest. I'm excited to have you join us with 34 years experience. I know you've got a lot to share, Joe. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Yes, I can talk all day about excavation and trenching safety. So let's get down into the dirty of it. All right. Well, in our last podcast, we talked about OSHA, but just as a reminder, this is what Congress created with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, as part of the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. The point of it is to ensure safe and healthful working conditions for workers by setting and enforcing standards and by providing training, outreach, education, and assistance. I have been actually looking for someone to talk about excavation and, and trenching because I have a healthy respect for it. And for OSHA, because in this area, it's a very fine line between safety and, and death. It is. And, you know, one of the things that might unfold as we get into this topic today is we're going to understand and realize that across our nation, different regions have different soil. And we're going to learn about soils and obviously mm-hmm. the different hazards. And, and you mentioned something that's true here in Arizona. We need to have respect for trenching and excavation work because we have some uh, often a lot of sandy, unstable soil that we'll talk about a little bit later today. You know, I wanted to talk about some of the stats as well. I mean, just to kind of drive home this a little bit, uh, like, so the cave-ins like we have here in Arizona are are more likely to result in the worker fatalities compared to other excavation-related incidents, right? That's correct. And just when you think about it, again, we'll talk about what a cave-in is later, but the likelihood of walking away with a scrape, a bruise, from a trench cave in or collapse is very slim to none. So chances are uh, that that blunt force trauma from the impact of a trench collapse is going to kill you versus, you know, any other slipping off of a ladder from three feet and uh-huh. they injure you and not necessarily end up in a fatality. So it definitely is more related to uh, fatalities. What other stats can you share with us? Well, you look at um, when we talk about excavation and trenching, 90% of all violations related to excavation and trenching is cave-in protection. And, we, you know, we find from statistics, a bigger percentage of that is dealing with when we're doing manhole installations. Uh-huh. And, you know, if we go back into looking at some of the Bureau of Labor Statistics stats, going back from a, a period of 1992 to 2001, there were 541 worker-related deaths just involving excavation and trenching jobs. You can look a little bit further from the periods of 2000 to 2006, there was 271 excavation fatalities. And 411 of those from the 541 were fatalities due from trench collapse or Uh cave-ins. And then we'll talk about some other hazards later on that break it up. But we're looking at uh, one more statistic I want to talk about is the average excavation fatality occurs in trenches 12 feet or less. And it's not as deep as a lot of people think, but that uh-huh. is the average depth at which employees are getting killed in excavations and trenches. Okay, I'm only five foot tall, four, five foot four on a good day. So <laughs> 12 feet is plenty deep for me. <laughs> yeah, as, as myself as well. You mentioned that there was five trenching hazards, cave-ins being one. What are the others? Cavens being one, but we often negate the fact that work around the area where we work, we have overhead power lines. We have equipment digging. So the second one to talk about and to be aware of is contacting power lines and overhead and not to negate underground utilities as well. One of the other five hazards falls into excavations. It's a little bit different than falling from an elevation where we have open excavations and trenches and we're employees working around them so that there's a chance of falls into excavations causing hazards, um, as well as equipment, which we'll talk about. Equipment could be not just heavy equipment. We're talking about materials and spoil piles Mm -hmm. falling into excavations. And 
The last one kind of categorized as explosions, fires, and electrocutions from the above ground and underground utility strikes and hazards that are there. You know, I tell my kids all the time, you, you can do dangerous things safely, but every once in a while you're like, you know, that's a lot of stuff that could happen. <laughs> it is. It's scary when you think of it from that perspective. Yeah. You know, let's start with some definitions, too. What is the difference between excavation and trenching? So when we talk OSHA standards, and I'm glad you brought that up, we want you as a person, individual, we need to look at how OSHA defines with the word definition or excavation uh, or trench. Because, again, if we ask three people in a room, what is the definition of an excavation? We're going to get three different answers. So yeah. OSHA and the OSHA standards says an excavation is any man-made cut, cavity, trench, or depression in the earth's surface that's formed by earth removal. And this includes excavations for anything from building foundations to highways. That's defined as an excavation. And then if we look at uh, a trench, the trench, according to the OSHA definition, is a narrow underground excavation that is deeper than it is wide, but no wider than 15 feet in its dimension. So there's two clear definitions, an excavation being uh, larger and a trench being deep and narrow. I usually just put those two together, but really a trench is a specific kind of excavation. In, in a sense, yes, but you said something that's good because a lot of people do that. They either put them together or they think there's a separate OSHA standard for excavations and there's a separate OSHA standard for trenches. And it's not. The subpart P uh, excavation and trenching standard covers both. So the, just the best way to look at it mm-hmm. is an excavation is more likely to be larger and more opened up. And a trench is just a lot yeah. more narrow and deeper. And that's the two distinguishing points. Both of them, either way, whether you have an excavation or a trench, warrant following the OSHA standards to work safely. I'm going to say, though, as a kid, when we would drive past, you know, construction and we'd have a you know, chance to look at it from the car, it all looked like a cool thing oh, to me. Me too. <laughs> it, you know, growing up in Chicago, we drove past a lot of quarries and, oh, and, and yeah. rock piles. And it'd be as a kid, who you kidding? As a child, me and my friends, we used to play on uh, the spoil piles and in some of the trenches and even in some of the manholes as a child. We got adventurous. Living on the edge because you don't know the exactly the ramifications. Back, like, <laughs> wow! <laughs> what does it take to be a competent person to for excavations? We're going to look at two definitions. The first one is OSHA's definition, so we all understand what is a competent person. A competent person is a person who has the the training, knowledgeable. They have to have the capabilities to recognize hazards that are in the surroundings or working conditions. So if they can identify those hazards. They can also have the authorization to take prompt corrective corrective measures to eliminate the hazards. That's just a uh, general definition of a competent person. Now, to be competent in regards to excavation and trenching, they also have to have knowledge about soil analysis, understanding different types mm-hmm. of soil analysis. They have to have a knowledge yeah. and understanding of the different types of protective systems because they're going to be uh, more than likely choosing a protective system. And they have to have a strong knowledge and understanding of the OSHA standards for subpart P. So they have to be a competent person, but have those other three elements in there. And when we talk about a competent person for excavation and trenching, this is, uh, I want everybody to understand that this is a performance uh, based standard. So the competent person has to demonstrate that if OSHA shows up to looking for that performance or behavior base is this person competent and the way they're going to determine that is how that competent person is performing one of my first projects uh, as a young engineer i was sent out to the field for an excavation job where they were putting they were basically backfilling a pipeline that had been put in under a riverbed and i remember thinking i know nothing why am i here And really, it was just to be the engineer on site if they had a question on the pipeline and things like that. But these guys were super experienced, really didn't need me. I got to sit in the car the whole time, basically. And I'm just sitting there, you know, as I read more about it and learn more about the trenching and stuff like that, I'm like, I had no business being out there, even in a car. So it kind of opened your eyes up to a little bit of the the serious nature that that we deal with when we deal with excavations and trenches, correct? Absolutely. Since we're talking about competent person, 
uh, something we talk about the competency to demonstrate. They need to understand what is a cave-in, and they have to be able to identify hazardous signs of a cave-in, trench collapses, cracks along mm-hmm. the soil. They have to be able to look at the protective system to determine when they left home uh, last evening and went to work today, did anything change? Did the protective system settle? They have to be able to recognize other related excavation hazards like is there an atmospheric hazard inside the trench? Conditions like that. So the competent person has a, a, a big responsibility. That hazardous atmosphere thing, that's just like the confined space issues. You know, you've got to monitor it, especially if it's down deeper. Exactly. Because vapors can just come through the yeah, soil. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you guys discussed that in your last podcast. So good, good timing. Okay. So there's a variety of things necessary and for let's see the number you gave me was 1926.651 specific excavation requirements uh, yes all right i'm going to need you to give me some examples sure, sure. so <laughs> <laughs> when, when we talked since we're talking about subpart p the osha excavation standards uh, that you know you know typically the excavations uh, the, the standard starts out with applicable definitions. And once we get through the definitions, as we talked about a few, we talked about what is a trench, what is an excavation. The next important section in subpart P is section uh, 651. And, and you, you said it correctly, specific excavation requirements. These are all of our specific excavation and trenching rules. Uh, so some of the some of the big ones, and, and there's probably 11 to 12 specific requirements. But when talk about some common ones, there's a specific requirement that talks about identifying utilities. Uh, here in Arizona, oh, yeah. we use Arizona 811. Uh, obviously, yeah. around the country, we have a one call system now. We set up uh, locating utilities before we dig through this system. Oh, absolutely. And you know the hazards of not doing that. But in the OSHA standard, they kind of work a little bit hand in hand with this. So OSHA has a couple of requirements when we talk about utilities. And then the first one under the specific requirements is to put the responsibility to the contractor, to to the competent person that we have to determine the location of all underground utilities prior to beginning excavation work. And then as we're yeah. digging and trying to locate the excavation, another specific requirement talks about we have to use safe means to find the exact location of the underground utilities. And once we expose that utility, we have to protect it. And, and something we talked about with competent person wise, this is one of those responsibilities the competent person has to make sure is being done safely, because I think we all have an understanding of what could happen when we hit a utility. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> and they're always exactly where the as-built say, uh, right? Yeah. I wish it was that easy. It's not, it's not the case. <laughs> not the case not at the all. Case at all. <laughs> many miles of pipeline. <laughs> but the good thing is, that's a great point, but the, the good thing is the industry best practice that we're seeing out there in the field across the nation is more contractors, uh, under the supervision of the competent people are taking a little more time and effort. You're seeing a lot more uh, uh, digging for a little bit, then they're going to a lot more hand digging to hand locate. And we even see uh-huh. methods of like a vacuum truck, all positive methods to locate the exact location to try to not cause damage. So we see the industry coming a long way with that. I agree. I agree. So what are some of the other requirements necessary? Uh, another, another big one, an important one I want to discuss is access and egress. Uh, in this specific requirements, OSHA has, OSHA has a couple of rules about entering and exiting excavation. So in the specific requirements, one of them talks about the depth of excavations. Once your excavation or trench is four feet or deeper, we, mm-hmm. the contractor, the competent person, have to provide a safe means of access and egress into that trench. And, and the standard talks about it could be a, typically a ladder, a ramp, or a stairway. And let's get real, most of the, most okay. of the time, we use ladders. Ramps are, are feasible, yeah. but ladders is the thing. So the specific requirement also talks about when we are using ladders, that the maximum distance an employee can travel to a point of egress, meaning that ladder is no more than 25 mm-hmm. feet. And that part of that requirement's in there from a safety perspective, that we, the OSHA wants there to be a ladder in a close enough proximity to an employee. So in the event of a sign of a cave-in or a cave-in, that employee has a chance to uh, you know, get out of that trench or excavation 
before it collapses around them. So it's very important on four feet or deeper, no more than 25 feet of lateral travel. And since I mentioned four feet, another one of the specific requirements uh, talks about excavations that are four feet or deeper need to be uh -huh. tested for the atmosphere to make sure we do not have a hazardous atmosphere in there as well. So, you know, yeah. the, the, that's the, those are some of the the big ones. Uh, there's there's other ones uh, talk about water accumulation. Uh, we're going to talk about soils uh, in this uh, podcast, but but water makes our soil unstable. So another specific requirement. Yeah. Uh, and the OSHA standards talks about water and, and we're often here. It's just a little water, right? Does it matter? <laughs> yeah. 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 What does it matter? Just rained a little yeah, bit. Yeah. yeah. It's just like utilities are, are always spot on. So it's not the case. A little water changes the whole dynamic of soil. So another specific requirement talks about water accumulation. So uh, here, uh -huh. here what OSHA does in the standard talks about two things that says where there's water accumulation or where water is accumulating. And this is a great example where the competent person's training and experience has to come in because the standard doesn't say something like accumulated water is six inches or more, or it doesn't say that clear point. So the competent person, he or she has to determine and understand what does accumulating mean? Water that's continuously filling up a trench or when you, when you, yeah. you, know, you go, yeah, you go home at the end of the day and it monsoons and rains in the evening. You come back to work the next morning and next thing you know, you have four feet of standing water in your trench. Guess what, guys, ladies, that's accumulated water. So the standard talks about yeah. making sure that we remove the water uh, by diverting the water uh, from the excavation through the supervision of a competent person. That's another specific requirement we talk about. Yeah, so you can't just Joe boat blow bucket it out typically you can't and, and, and you're right that's sometimes what, what people have done in the past they they don't think yeah uh, they don't think that that water did anything to make that trench or excavation more unstable and that's the misconception there and here in arizona we're, we're not used to just a nice little bit of rain it's usually buckets it, it, for a few hours it, and then goes yeah, away <laughs> yeah that, it, it might not be long but when it does it comes down hard and uh, yes that's for sure okay so how often should they be inspecting their, their excavation sites? Oh, that's a great question. All of those uh, excavation specific requirements are important. But to me, in 34 years of doing this, I think one of the most important uh, specific requirements is the requirement that says a competent person shall inspect excavations daily. So to answer your question, it's daily. It's prior to the start of work, which makes sense, doesn't it? as needed yeah. throughout the shift which is often overlooked and yes. and after any hazard increasing occurrence so prior to any shift we all know what that means and maybe we'll talk about or you'll ask more questions about the inspection itself but it makes sense before we go to work but what does it mean as needed throughout the shift you know think about it as we have crews working in trenches and in excavations in the area around us it's, it's changing. So that means the dynamic in the trench and around the trench, trench could be changing. So the competent person needs to continuously inspect what would be an example of a hazard increasing occurrence. Maybe uh, we just talked about rain. Uh, maybe you know after lunch, it starts to rain on us. So that rainwater yeah. could create hazards. Or maybe we're working near the intersection of a roadway and there's a car accident. And after the accident, we had emergency vehicles. And again, all those different things could could be occurrences that change the dynamics of your trench that warrant another inspection. And when I was working with the engineering firms, I mean, there was a checklist and that sucker was intense. You'll check all of these things kind of deal. And, you know, if we were the people in charge, if we were the contact person, oh, yeah. you know, if it, it was on the contractor, we just had to make sure that they had gone through their checklist. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's, you know, coming back and forth. We're so. in the day and age now, if it's not documented, it never happens. So when OSHA in the, in the yeah. specific standard says, you know, a daily excavation shall be completed. Uh, you're, you're right. Uh, pretty much all contractors have to deal with this, have their own. But OSHA does not provide you with an excavation checklist. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's the employer has to create their own and you can you can find them online. And what you talked about, you said it's a, it's a pretty exhaustive list. So if you think about the responsibilities and roles of a competent person, 
and you talk and you think about all the different types of hazards we have when we deal with excavations and trenching. Now picture a checklist that can have some of these specific hazards that you want a competent person to look for prior to allowing employees mm-hmm. to work. And that ends up being a pretty exhaustive list. But like anything, this is a good case of more is better. The more items you have on that checklist for the competent person to look at, chances are it's going to be a, sa- a better, safer job, a, a better safety culture. So uh, that, that is the importance of that excavation checklist. Let's kind of move over to sloping and shoring because I've seen people that cut corners on that because excavation would have been too wide or really it was good enough or that, you know, the, I just, ugh, there's been some times I've been like, um, I don't want to be here. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. You're not alone. And I think it's safe to say in most of our lives, many of us, even just people driving down the road, uh, at an intersection have seen a contractor working in the middle of the street in a trench with, with barricades around them. And if I had a dollar for every time I saw one of those, when that crew did not have a protective system inside that trench, I'd have quite a bit of dollars in my pocket. So let's talk about protective systems in general. Let's start with uh, sloping and shoring. And we do see people cutting corners. We can have a whole other podcast about why companies uh, cut corners. This isn't that one. Okay. Protective yeah. systems. <laughs> this isn't that. This isn't today. Protective systems. We're, we're digging a trench, and I'm going to kind of go off a little tangent here. Uh, so people can okay. visualize the need of a protective system. If we look at the weight of soil, we're talking about excavations and trenching. One cubic foot of soil, a 12 by 12 by 12 box, that's one cubic foot, weighs uh-huh. 90 to 130 pounds, depending on how much moisture is in it. Can you visualize that? Okay. Yeah. So, so now visualize a 12-inch excavator, a backhoe bucket, digging one foot down to dig a trench. We got a 12 foot deep trench. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in theory, if one cubic foot of soils, we'll just use hundred pounds as an average. We, did, we dug a one foot deep trench. Now we have 50 feet of lateral pressure pushing in from one side of that trench and 50 feet of lateral pressure pushing down from the other side, because we took out one cubic foot, which is hundred, hundred pounds. Correct. So we got yeah. that lateral force pushing down. Now, visualize the deeper we dig, how much more increasing of lateral forces we have. So now let's talk about protective systems now that you have this visual. What can we do to protect or prevent those lateral forces from excavation and trench walls from caving in? We can use protective systems, okay? Let's talk about sloping and benching and shoring and hydraulic. Let's talk about protective systems, okay? Protective systems, we have different options out there, and I'm gonna use two words. Some of the protective systems we have are proactive, while other protective Uh systems options we have are reactive. So let's first talk about boxes and shields. Heather, have you seen boxes and shields being used in the industry? Oh, absolutely. They're always so interesting. Yeah, and, 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 <laughs> How do they get them down yeah, there? <laughs> yeah, right. And they get your attention. Another thing, like like the, like the quarries and excavation, driving on the roads as kids, you saw these big metal boxes and and ladders sticking out, and you wondered what were these? You know. So let's talk about yeah, yeah. shields and boxes. Look at these as these are reactive systems. These are designed by engineers, and as long as the competent person in the crew install these boxes and shields according to the tabulated data. The, the box and shield is strictly designed to react, meaning you place it in the, the excavation, 10 foot deep, eight feet wide, whatever the depth is, it's designed to sit there. And in the event that the trench caves in, the uh, shield being reactive is supposed to support the weight of the force that's imposed on the shield. There's an example of reactive, okay? Yeah, it's kind of like a dam holding back yeah, water. Yeah, good. That's a great kind of idea. Great way to look at it. Now, again, provided, as I said, the competent person needs to install it properly, following the manufacturer's tabulated data. That's a whole other podcast as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now we look at. Uh, let's switch to some proactive 
protective systems. Uh, have you ever seen mm-hmm. hydraulic shoring systems used out there? Oh yeah. So we have, yeah, oh, yeah. I look at everything. Have, yeah, <laughs> in, in Arizona, that's a very another common option. You see hydraulic shoring, and you've seen them in in the in means of uh, single shores. Uh, hydraulic shoring used with uh, the fin form wood attached to them. We have uh, stacking systems and even using horizontal as a whaler system. Well, a hydraulic shore shoring systems, including timber shoring. Being from Chicago, we used a lot of hardwood timber shoring back in the day. And, and still, it's, I know it's still used in different regions of our, of our nation, depending on the earth. But hydraulic protected system, hydraulic shoring is proactive, meaning it's designed. When you have hydraulic shoring in, it's designed, again, when following the manufacturer's tabulated data, the shoring itself is actually uh, allowing compression into those excavation walls. And the proactiveness of that is designed to keep those walls vertical from caving in. There's a there's a proactive uh-huh. type. And even more proactive, yeah, and something you mentioned earlier when we were talking and asking about the question that we never seen, you know, excavations uh, sloped or benching properly is benching and sloping. That is, believe it or not, the most proactive protective system we can use because we are digging a protective system and it's proactive because we are removing the soil. Since we talked about the weight of soil, you know, one cubic foot, 90 to 130 pounds, one cubic yard weighs about 3,000 pounds. The proactiveness of a sloping or benching system is we're digging an angle by removing the soil, and that angle creates a protective system from eliminating uh, or preventing a trench collapse. The only problem is, is if it's in the middle of the street, you can't take up all six lanes. Because, you know, that's that's one of the excuses we hear. And it's not always an excuse. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm great. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, we don't always have the room. But if you look at the way OSHA kind of laid out the subpart P standards, we have options. So we have options from many different types of protective systems from the, the smaller boxes, there's build-a-box systems, there's large trench shields, you have hydraulic shoring, so you're right. So the good news is if they don't have room or there's only room on one side, uh, the competent person, the employer, thanks to innovation technology, there, there should always be a type of protective system we can use. I haven't climbed down on one of those because I just have trust issues. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, but I've always wanted to, but I have trust eerie. issues. <laughs> Something about going inside excavations and trenches and confined spaces. Okay, it looks it looks cool. It's neat. Once you climb down, it's like a different kind of quiet down there. And it's a different kind of eerie, even inside a shield, because you have an understanding that, that shield's protecting me from being buried underneath, you know, a mound of dirt. So it is, it is uh, eerie. Let's talk about the soil mechanics as well, because... You know, the difference between the different types, stable rock. I mean, that makes all the difference what proactive or reactive system you use. Absolutely. So uh, in in, uh, subpart B, the excavation standards, OSHA has an appendix that talks about soil classification. Uh, But in order to be able to classify soil, we need to understand the different types of soil we have. And this isn't a you know geology class. We're not gonna we're not gonna talk about every earth deposit out there, Heather. We're gonna talk about <laughs> it would be fun. I have friends that are geotechs and they will talk about yeah. everything. And, and, and you know, uh, <laughs> let's face it, how how interesting is dirt sometimes, right? Oh <laughs> well, yeah. Depends on the day. But OSHA breaks down soil into, into four categories. So the first one understanding. We have, a, we have a type of soil called solid stable rock. And I think that is mm-hmm. pretty clear in what it means. The two words in a solid and stable, right? And then OSHA talks about yeah. uh, soil in three other types or categories. There's something called a type A soil, uh, something called a type B soil, and something called a type C soil. Do we need to explain what solid stable rock is, Heather, at this point? Uh, no, I think that means rock that doesn't it does. But let's ask, let's ask this one question. In many cases, if we... If we think we have solid rock and we're going to try to have an excavator dig it, the chances of the excavator digging through that rock is slim to none, correct? Probably. So typically then what a contractor ends up having to do when they have solid rock is they have to blast it. So then once you have to blast solid rock, is it 
remain solid. No, because you're looking at the fissures exactly. and cracks so and so forth. Yeah, so. I mean, solid, stable rock can be found out there. It's just, it's just here in Arizona, it's slim to none. Uh, but that is one of your types of soils you might find. So let's talk about type A, B, and C soil. Where do you want to start, Heather? Uh, just start with okay, A. Type I A. Mean, and and we're going to paraphrase a little bit, but again, you can really get into the, the, the appendix on soil classification. But type A soil, so OSHA has them kind of in a hierarchy. So solid, stable rock would be the best soil you can have. Okay. Then the okay. next best type of soil is type A soil. What does it mean? It's it's kind of your, your hard stuff. You're very stiff. It's got a lot of clay content in it. And type A soil yeah. does not have, you can't see any cracks, no fissures. It's not previously disturbed. Uh, that's mm-hmm. your type A stuff. It, it also has something, I'm going to throw this out there. It has something, it has a higher unconfined compressive strength. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. It means it means the cohesiveness of that soil at what percent is its breaking strength. We'll clarify that later. But that's your type A soil. Just think of so being from Chicago, we had a lot of good type A soil in different regions in the Chicago, Wisconsin, the Midwest area. We we had good because uh-huh. in, in probably because of different water tables, but we had some good type A clay soils there. And then we have type B soil kind of going from solid stable rock to type A and going in descending order. We have type B soil. Type B soil is medium stability. Okay. Uh, silt, sandy loam, uh, sometimes what we call previously disturbed soil that once was type A would be dropped down to type B soil. Yeah, because it's been mixed exactly. up. Exactly. In- previously disturbed, uh, subject, to, subject to vibration. In some cases, that was once type A. This is the middle of the road, but very common. Okay, uh, and and it's it also has an unconfined compressive strength. It's just going to be a different number. And then the mm-hmm. the worst, if you will, at bottom of the list there is what we call type C soil. It's soft, very soft, uh, sandy. Could be submerged soil, soil where there's water freely seeping, soil next to the roadway. That would be considered type C soil. But understand, type C soil also has an unconfined compressive strength. So we have four soil types. Solid stable rock, type A, type B, and type C. Let's talk about that unconfined compressive strength. What that is? Uh, absolutely, unconfined. So when we talk about unconfined compressive strengths, when we look to further into the OSHA standards and we talk about understanding soil class soils, a competent person has to do a couple tests to determine the type of soil he or she has, and one of those tests that brings us into unconfined compressive shrinks is when we use two instruments. There's something referred to as a pocket penetrometer and a shear or uh-huh. a tour vein. These instruments give us readings in tons per, per square feet. And uh, tons per square feet, again, it basically is a calibrated instrument that gives us a reading based on a series of tests and we take an average and it tells us the breaking strength at which that soil will fail. So for example, in the OSHA standards, in the appendix, it says it would be type A soil if you you have an unconfined compressive strength of 1.5 tons per square feet or greater. That would be type A soil. Uh, Type B soil in the OSHA standard says you have an unconfined compressive strength of 0.5 up to 1.5. So a range in tons per square feet. And then type C being your least stable soil, the OSHA standard says it's type C soil if the unconfined compressor strength is 0.5 tons per, per square feet or less. So it's a great tool because, Heather, can you look at that soil? Can you look at that trench wall? And with your eyes, can you say, oh, yeah, that's that's 1.5 tons per square feet. Can you do that? Well, uh, no, although I, I had a geotech friend who was telling me about the uh, lead on their in their team that could, he would grab a sample, roll it around his mouth and tell you. <laughs> that's and, that's um, pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm not going there. I'll send that out to the lab. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you, you just said something I want to touch base on. You know, you talked about, you can put it in his mouth and taste it. Well, I'm not going to do that, but let's talk about sedimentation. How about that? 
sanitation. Yeah, yeah that makes a difference uh, too. The, the, the USDA has something called a textual classification chart. So competent persons, when they have to determine what kind of soil they have in the field at the job site, and the OSHA standard says a competent person has to do at least one visual test and at least one uh-huh. manual test. Those are the minimum. So if a competent person does one manual and one visual test, he or she, based on the training, the tests they do, will be able to come up with what kind of soil they have. And it's subjective to the test. Now, sedimentation, again, most of us are not these types of engineers, but to have an understanding of what some of our soils engineers do to come up with some of the, the testing results, a sedimentation test is one of those. So if we took a handful of soil, that soil that your friend's got to put in his mouth and tell us what kind of soil it is, right? That was his boss, <laughs> not him. <laughs> so let's, let's take that handful of soil from a, from a spoil pile. Now, looking uh-huh. at it, we're not going to be able to see by that handful of soil. We can't visually see how much sand, silt, and clay is in that hand sample. Correct. Yeah. So a sedimentation test is just another type of test that we can do, and I'm not going to explain the whole process, but it's a it's test done in, in, in typically a mason jar, and we add water and we we separate soil through a sieve. It's a very neat, mm-hmm. unique test, and and you shake it, the sort the particles in there, and and you let it sit overnight and for so many hours, and when you come back, you you can now see. The breakthrough breakthrough threshold of the of the clay, the sand, and the silt. They all separate, and you can take these measurements mm-hmm. and use the USDA textural soil chart. And you can you can cross-check all three of these percentages and you can see in, in a scale what kind of soil do you have? Do you have do you have clay? Do you have sand? Do you have silt? And it's gonna help you or the competent person come up with what kind of what class of soil they have, type A, B, or C. Another great thing through sedimentation. Yeah, I think that sounds a lot better than the, you know, pop it in your mouth, switch it around. <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah, idea. It's not coffee grounds, right? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> so um, what else should we know about soil mechanics? Is there any else thing else we should keep you in know, mind? Soil mechanics, let's, let's just... Let's just leave it with one fact with soil mechanics, right? We 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 now okay. know we know one cubic foot of soil weighs ninety to one hundred and thirty pounds. So look at it this way: one cubic yard. So again, if you picture at most job sites and construction sites, often we have a John Deere, a Caterpillar, a, a, some kind of front end loader combo machine that has a one yard bucket for backfilling. Yeah, right? one yard. Yeah. One yard of soil weighs up to 3,000 pounds, okay? So now, <sighs> guess what a little Volkswagen Beetle weighs? On a good day, maybe 3,000? Yeah, just, just about that, 2,785 pounds. So picture a one-yard bucket of soil being dumped on an individual in a trench that's equivalent to a Volkswagen Beetle being thrown on top of you. What do you think the chances are of sustaining, you know, walking out of that alive? with that collapse. Oh, but you're wearing a hard yeah, hat, right? Yeah, so you're right. totally right. safe. You got PPE, the hard hat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <soil> mechanics, no. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's scary. So just understand that visual. So soil mechanics is the competent person has to demonstrate that through their manual tests and visual tests to determine first what kind of soil we have. It's the first step to do. We can't pick a protective system without knowing what kind of soil we have. and the best advice out there if a competent person is not sure is to treat that soil as type c soil treat it as the worst and then doing what you can do following the osha standards treating it as type c soil it means you can't bench it it means you're gonna have to slope it one and a half to one it means you might have to use a box or a shield but again Mm -hmm. treating it the worst is going to come out the best. And you know something that we haven't covered yet is just where do you put those temporary spoil piles or the permanent? Right. You know, uh, we're, we're digging, right? So what does that dirt go? Is that, that's kind of what you're asking, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I know where the dirt goes, and I, I've actually seen you know guys clamoring it down it to look over and talk to the guy below them, kicking dirt on them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, had, I had a few ulcers. Or, yeah, or that, another that one day. of those things we see driving down the road, you know, we see, you know, spoil piles 10, 12, 15 feet high. Well, that's another one of those OSHA specific requirements 
in uh, 651, 1926, 651, talks about all spoil piles. That's dirt. All the spoils yeah. being removed from the trench. Also, all the equipment and materials. OSHA groups, three things are spoils, equipment, and material have to be at least two feet away from the edge of the excavation. Heather, what do you think the weight of that dirt or equipment or material does when it's along the edge or side of an excavation? See, there's a thing called gravity. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it has a very attractive force to the bottom of that, <laughs> that trench uh, yeah. <laughs> or excavation. Right? And you're right. So OSHA's minimum requirement is two feet. Now, again, somebody that has a company has a, a safety culture that's exemplary. You're going to see their spoil piles being placed farther away from the edge of a trench than two feet. Two feet to the minimum. Or even, and, yeah. and, 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 or even trucked right, off. Right? I've seen it and, trucked and again, off. What it does is, it, you know, we remember the weight of that dirt, the spoil piles, is adding additional weight. We call it surcharge loads. It's applying yeah. loads to the edge of that trench, which could impose the potential of a cave-in coming in, depending on the lack of a, of a protective system. So two feet or the farther away you go is going to be safer for protecting against surcharge loads of the weight of the spoil piles. Now, I should say that the guy I saw who was walking on the spoil pile trying to look into the trench, he got chewed out. (laughs) That's definitely not a safe thing to do. I mean, imagine that now. So now we got that potential engulfment. Uh, You know, you ever see loose piles of gravel and sand, right? So then we got this person walking on the top of a spoil pile, adding additional weight. So guess what's going to happen if that dirt decides to cave in? Spoil piles coming in along with uh, that individual on top of the spoil pile. So it's just a comedy of errors that could result in a tragedy. Whew. All right. It got heavy there yeah, for a I second. Know. <laughs> you start thinking about the realities here. Yeah, reality is it's very real. And, you know, I had someone complain one time, you know, OSHA has all these rules. I'm like, because someone has been that dumb. Right. I'm glad you said it that way. Being a uh, lead instructor for the OSHA Ed Center, as I tell a lot, depending on the class I'm teaching, I say that statement a lot. This is a rule because somebody did something, let's call it a fact, stupid. Somebody caught a corner. And, and I know many of us in life have caught corners, but let me kind of leave this closing point. How you do anything is how you do everything. You think about that for a second. As a person, and maybe it's the Marine in me, maybe it's the safety person in me, and maybe it's my wife. How you <laughs> how you do anything is how you should do everything. So if you're tempted to cut a corner just one time with tranching and excavations or anything, and you cut that corner just one time, guess what? You're gonna do it again and again and again. So how you do anything is how you do everything. As a competent person, if you do things by the book how you were trained, understanding your responsibility each and every time you're going to send your crew home every day because how you do anything is how you do everything. I love that phrase. And I think I'm going to use it on my kids yeah, today. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to hate me so for it. You expect the rooms <laughs> to be clean and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You know, the dishes, the, the dishes, good. that's another good one. <laughs> All right. Well, is there any uh, lessons learned or anything else you'd like to, to share? We've covered a lot. We've covered a lot. And, and you know, when we look at statistics, uh, obviously, you know, we, we, we want to remain proactive. And that's OSHA's purpose as well. It's, it's what can we do as employers, as competent persons, as professionals in, in the industry? We, we want to see this number because the, tra- the, number, the tragedy and, and the number of the likelihood of becoming a fatality is what can we do to get this number lower. You know, how can we reduce the number of, of trench fatalities and collapses? And it's, it's kind of what we're doing today is talk, let's talk about it. But we didn't talk about training. Training is important. It's yeah. not just about training the competent person. It's training the crew, training the employees working in and around and near excavations and trenches. I think that's probably one of the, the biggest things, like anything, unless we're trained, then we don't know. And I'm not saying, and you know, Heather, the fact is even the trained individuals have accidents. Even somebody trained has been killed in a cave-in. But yeah. when we look at the lack of training, the lack of knowledge, the smaller companies out there, and we have a lot of small companies doing underground work out there. The importance of training is going to help us see a decrease in this number. 
it's not just one time. It's a continual training process with very few exceptions. You're not going to learn everything in one project. Right. Of course, there have been those projects from from Hades. Right. And all all projects are the same. Right, Heather? Oh, they're absolutely the same. So, again, your point is very valid. It's not just a one and done training. It's ongoing. Typically, for my company, Universal Safety Appliance, we have many clients over the years that are underground contractors. We do annual excavation awareness training and annual excavation competent person training to keep not only the, the, the foreman, the supervisors, the managers up to date and fresh on the competency side, but also all the other employees on the awareness side. As you said, it's ongoing. It's not one and done because we're humans. We forget sometimes what we learned yesterday. I agree. Or the situation is slightly different. So you don't know if the rules still apply exactly. or if it's the same rules or something. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Any other lessons learned you want to share? I'm good. Uh, I mean, I, uh, yeah. Good? I mean, I, I mean, I feel we, this is kind of a crash course. There was so many other things we got to talk about, but I think you know yeah. we got enough out there that that uh, should hopefully uh, heighten some awareness to individuals and and maybe maybe make them look deeper into excavation and trenching safety. Just so you know, we we took what hours of your. Uh, training and put it into about 45 that's minutes. Good, so there's a, a right. whole that's a good way bunch to look more. At it. Yeah, we kind of took, you, you know, <laughs> uh, and we took an hour out of, you know, a six to eight hour class. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot more things that can be covered. And if you have questions, please feel free to contact Joe directly. We're going to include his contact information in the show notes. And I love what we've gone over today. Oh, thank you. This was this no, was I good. It. I don't get to do this stuff much no, now. I agree. And and you know, a lot the thing about too, a lot of companies, how many companies don't do the excavation work, but they could be working near a contract or doing underground excavation work and understanding some of these hazards is gonna help them as well. Yep, hundred percent. With that, let's transition to the Wanda's water tidbit. And Joe, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the atmospheric rivers. Yes. Yes, cool. very interesting um, and, and kind of good timing, good segue into this, because once we talk about this, it'll make a little bit of sense also in regards to uh, how this can change and impact, you know, the soil conditions, perhaps. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this is the part that I kind of, you know, salute my mom with. But recently in Phoenix, we experienced what was called an atmospheric river, and I had no idea what that meant. And then the next day we got dumped on with a lot of rain in Phoenix. Now we're a desert. So rain in Phoenix is just a magical thing. I got curious what that atmospheric river was. And what I found is that they're relatively long, narrow regions in the atmosphere, literally like a river in the sky that transports most of the water vapor outside of the tropics towards our way or towards another uh, landmass. And these columns of vapor move with the weather and they can carry the amount of water vapor equivalent to or greater than uh, what comes out of the mouth of the Mississippi River. Wow. I don't, isn't that scary? I know you start visualizing that, right? Yeah. And, and they're like, and a really strong one can carry 7.5 to 15 times that. <laughs> like these are the largest rivers of fresh water and they're all up in the air. Kind of explains some of the turbulence I've flown through mm-hmm. when it rains. <laughs> you know, these can be hundreds to thousands of miles long. And when they say narrow, they're meaning like 300 miles across. Wow. And again, visualize that, the span of some of that atmospheric river going over uh, some mountain ranges and things like that, coming over coastal lines. Yeah. And I'm like, well, no wonder why when they hit, you know, we can get flooding, we can get landslides, we get record snow. There's actually a really famous one on the West Coast that they call the Pineapple Express. Pineapple Express. I've heard of it. I, I, yeah, I've heard of it. Have you? Okay, I had I, it. I've seen, I've seen some of the after effects. I've worked a lot in Southern California before. And, you know, I've been, you know, on I-10 during mudslides when they shut down I-10. So understanding now atmospheric rivers obviously one of the things that obviously brought that storm to the coastline and, and you know got to see the aftermath of one of the pineapple expresses that's moisture from the tropics mm. that's not even near us but yet it right. is right yeah. and think, and so <laughs> since you're talking about atmospheric rivers i mean technically you know contractors do work underground uh, across the nation, of course, you know, we, we do we do pay attention to weather patterns because, again, we know water, snow and snow melts, 
the conditions in the atmosphere of the air can change and affect the soil conditions. I mean, you, you, know, we, you know, in the Midwest, we get a lot of rain. So often uh, excavation work is shut down because of the rain. So now factor in atmospheric rivers and what does that do to different regions? Here in Arizona, we're dry. We've been bone dry for a month. And then all of a sudden something hits. It could be a catastrophic change. It can. Well, and we get, you've been here. So we've heard of and seen some of the effects of those uh, flash floods flash floods we've had where we've seen the devastation yeah. and and along the west coast and you said it's tropics i've, I've heard of and seen the one same thing in hawaii same thing it's no wonder then why people you know monitor them with satellite and radar and aircraft and all that kind of stuff like you know they have weather models trying to predict where they'll hit so they can do warnings if necessary when you have like you said we have, we have satellites that track it you know Think about what earthquakes do and the hazards and monitoring behind those. Now, understanding uh, atmospheric rivers and how long they are, how far they can travel. Uh, we, you know, we have meteorologists that track this stuff. You kind of said it. Uh, these can be tragic events and they're tracked just like hurricanes because they come in different categories, don't they? Yeah. And I, that was something that when you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Category ones, they actually consider category one atmospheric rivers as beneficial you know they're bringing in the rain that people need and so forth like that but on the high end they have a category five and that is really where the hazards start happening you know the flooding the the other issues that uh, people are seeing and actually today on the news they were talking about a category four coming inland i'm like holy crud you know? oh yeah now that you kind of understand that it's kind of like wow so anytime you see uh, in California, there's a National Oceanic Atmosphere Administration. So there's one of the organizations, yeah. organizations that monitors this. And, and yeah, so, you know, most of us, though, might not have heard of atmospheric rivers and don't think anything about it. But this is a great topic to to bring to attention. Yeah, especially in relation to the excavation of trenching. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're going to include our links in the show notes. So if you want to read more about atmospheric rivers, you can. And Joe, thank you again. I mean, I've really enjoyed this time chatting with you. I'm like, I know we've taken so much and put just a little bit into this podcast, but uh, I appreciate your time. This is really fun. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And hope we can, hopefully we can do it again someday on something else. Okay. That sounds fun. All right. Thank you. And we'll talk with you soon, listeners. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.